home life it's home plus life podcast we're not here to just talk about the latest trends we're gonna break through the myths and put some facts on the table because when it comes to real estate you need to be well informed so now it's time to get serious and talk market trends here we You're right there. Yeah, yeah. I'm just adjusting the uh, the podcast run sheet on the fly. As soon as the uh, the intro finished, I'm crossing something out because what to make sure that you can not do that. Yeah, I, I just I don't know. Like this is this is an episode that we have wanted to do since we first started the podcast. We've tried to record it probably three times, and each time it hasn't played out the way I guess we would like and it's such an important topic so what what we're going to be talking about today with are you okay day coming up is well also the black dog institute and black dog institute uh coming up as well is obviously dealing well with their walk their walk their um, walk dealing with with the challenges and stresses in in everyday life and the mental health challenges that come with the world that we're living in, in in these days and and both Sian and I have had extensive experience with battling mental health demons mm-hmm. um, for lack of a better term so I think straight up you know, a very quick trigger warning is in that we are going to be talking about our own story and our own journey on this uh, and the strategies that we've used to survive them and it, look like every episode, we, we have a run sheet, we have some key points, and then we just let things run naturally, and it could mean that we get into some dark places, uh, and we talk some really real stuff. So just be aware, right? If, if you need to, tune out. But one thing I will promise you is, is we are going to talk about the strategies and the things that have genuinely helped us get to where we are now, where we've won our battles with mental health and, and despite our lives probably being more stressful than at any other point with more BS happening and, and challenges, mm-hmm. uh, we are coping with them incredibly well and are not seeing a relapse really into the days of those mental health struggles. I think it's because we've got strategies in place in order to do that. And, and that's it. So there's going to be a lot of value. There's going to be a lot to take out of this, but we're in order to ensure that, the strategies and the importance and the context of them are provided. We kind of have to provide the context, I guess, of our own stories and our own struggles, which could be a bit a bit challenging to listen to for some people. Mm. So just up front, but uh, we promise you that we're going to give you how we got to where we are and how things worked. But no no sponsor ad. I don't think we should have a sponsor ad on this one. I think this, no, this I is think a topic. Let's... Yeah. 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 Okay. So um, we... I'm pretty sure that we've actually done one in regards to your own. No, we never, we never we published never it. it. We just, we were never, it never felt right. We never really covered it in a way that we felt comfortable with. Okay. And we've, we've tried to do it three times. This will be attempt number four. So hopefully lucky number four. Okay. All right. <laughs> right. So I'm just trying to think of how much I... How about how about I start? 
No, I'll start. You'll start? All right. So uh, it is actually within my family, um, which is one thing. So what, it's what, What's within your family? Depression. Yeah. Um, and so I, I had experienced – the first time that I had experienced depression was actually when my grandfather died when I was 16. Um, that hit me uh, to the point where I stopped doing stuff that I loved – and, you know, it was always, I had, I covered it up by saying, uh, I need to focus on school. Yeah. And it wasn't that. It was just, I was genuinely depressed. You just um, didn't want to do anything. I just didn't want to do anything. And um, covered up my feelings by eating and self-loathing and all of the lovely things that actually goes with it. Yeah. Uh, and then I had gone to the other extreme of actually having an eating disorder, um, which, again, is something that I do struggle with myself even now. But because I am aware of it, um, it's I, I have strategies in place. Yeah. Then um, had a few years where it, everything was good. I had hold of everything, um, had my, my daughter and I ended up having postnatal depression and she was actually my second. Yeah. So there, there is a lot of support when there's a first time parent where, because your world has completely changed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but I didn't have it with my son. I had it with my daughter. And that is when it was explained to me that actually it's not an uncommon thing to have it with, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth child because there's an extra pressure that is actually that you thought you had a grasp of, but you, it's still a big change well the the wisdom that we got given is is two kids is three times the work yes and i don't think you're ever really fully prepared for that 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 multiplier to kick and in. you know i had thoughts of just upping and leaving like literally just walking out and never returning disappearing right um i had thoughts of literally the next time that this car stops i'm getting out and i'm disappearing yeah right um and it wasn't that my daughter was crying or that my son was acting up. It was literally, a, it was a lovely day. We were going on a family trip um, to the museum in Brisbane. And I was just like, I can't do this. Yeah. I'm done. Um, and then um, I have also had... Um, being in a blended family, I have had my own struggles with yeah. other things that go with being in a blended family. I'm, I'm not going into that um, in this, but, but... But being a blended family has its challenges because it's not, it's not just the people under your roof that can have an impact. No, that's um, right. There's, there's a lot more fingers in the pie, as it were, and... Not everyone may be sharing the same values or the same goals or outcomes yeah. 
or and then there was life. also COVID. There was a lot of and, and I think that's a, that's such an important reason for why we're doing this episode. I was in Melbourne recently, and Melbourne's a different place. Yeah, post COVID, Melbourne is a massively different place. I've got a lot of friends in Melbourne who have talked about what their experience was through COVID, and there's a lot of things that I'm seeing out the other side of COVID all over the country. Mm. That with the experience I have, and we'll get into that in a minute, but with the experience I have, I'm going, that's a trauma reaction. That's mm. a PTSD-style reaction. Mm. And nobody's talking about it. Nobody's really diving into the impact COVID had, regardless of which state or city you were in in this country, on the mental health yeah. of everybody who went through it. And I'm not just talking the adults. I'm talking the kids as oh. well who had everything disrupted. Uh, you know, there's... I had a fantastic chat with an Uber driver in Melbourne talking about, you know, one of the things for him was that there's there's this pervasive idea that it is now being demonstrated that everything that you love, everything that you work for, everything that gives you purpose in life mm. can be taken away in a heartbeat and it's entirely out of your control. Mm. Yeah. And, and everyone's in there with you. And everyone's in there, but no one's talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. So... That was my ex- my experience, still my experience. and But I think compared to when I had first gone through it, I, I was a teenager. I didn't actually have anyone sit there because everyone was going through that within my family. Well, not, uh, not depression, but they had all experienced that so everyone grieves different and and that was one thing that sort of annoyed I look back and I go that's annoying is everyone grieves differently yes it is true but that is when you can actually and a person who suffers who isn't aware that that's what's actually going on with them when it comes to depression is they just go oh it's because um you know I I've lost someone, I'm grieving, not realising that that's actually not grief. It is like it's, it is. It's gone another level. But you're, you're also depressed. So yeah. it's not just grieving that you're yeah. dealing with here. You are actually genuinely depressed as well. And those are two different things. And a, yeah. lot, of people, a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah. The one thing that I do sort of laugh at, and I know this sounds, when people go, oh, no, I don't get depressed. I'm oh, like there are people out there in this world who don't. Uh, I no, I'm sorry. I feel that there everyone ha- does experience depression to some level. I disagree. I I just find it there there are people out there who have the ability to disassociate from events happening and to guard and protect their emotions from that or to reframe the, the story and the narrative of what's happening to them in a way that actually empowers them. And, and if you look at the strategies that we've both been taught and gone through in, in psych and things like that, a lot of the, uh, the language around that is about reframing the narrative of what, what has happened to you or what is happening to you. And there's some people who just do that naturally. And there are some people that are just not affected. They go, you know what? That's not my circus, not my monkeys. And so it, it doesn't I feel like them. there's something else that's going on with them. That If you have never experienced oh, some I, sort of depressed – I'm not saying that you're down in the pit and – But there's to, a difference between depression and sadness though. Like you can get sad and you're not depressed. 
Depress- depression is an elongated, extended thing where it lasts long after, and it actually pervasively changes your perception of reality. Right? It's not just sad, oh, I'm sad, my dad died, so I was sad for a month or two. And then I pulled myself out of it and got on with the job kind of deal. Like, yes, people get sad. And, and most people, in fact, I'd, I'd, I'd agree if you said everybody on the planet's experienced some level of sadness, I'd agree with you. But I don't agree that everybody's experienced some level of depression. Because it's some people are better armed. See, I, to, I would say... To grasp and deal with it. I would say that there's some people who haven't necessarily experienced sadness in as much as that they feel it deeply right where it's like oh, i'm sad that i didn't get that trophy right oh i think everyone's or, experienced a disappointment and, and yeah but this <laughs> they had not see if uh, not everyone's experienced depression you, you'll never convince me of that i i think that there's there are people out there who don't and and I actually like but that's why I'm saying I feel like that's uh, I'm not saying that everyone should act like and when oh, I'm, I'm absolutely against everyone experiencing uh, depression yeah I don't, I don't want I want everyone to be out I don't want them to experience look depression. I wouldn't uh, for my own journey I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy yeah there there are some people who are genuinely unfazed by the shitstorm that gets delivered upon them they they absolutely are. I I find that troubling, to be quite honest, because I feel that it is actually some a pe- natural progression of... Some people of- are just mentally healthy and strong. And and you know what? It's not even that, because you, you require mental strength to survive depression. You absolutely do. But what I mean by that is there are some people whose brain has everything that it needs in terms of, of chemistry and, and production and everything like that. And whether it's through upbringing, so whether it's a natural thing, they have the tools and strategies and some of the ones that we're going to talk about to just automatically process that stuff. And so they process things in a really healthy way and therefore it doesn't leave a lasting mark and they just get on with the job. If you're one of those people, I want to know. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel that you're a bit I, of a I freak a th- of nature. I, I have a theory too that a lot of the people that fit that category also don't have an inner monologue. And that's, I think the inner monologue is probably our greatest enemy in that but that's that's my own personal theory that's off topic for today but okay so uh, so for me for my side of things um look just i just remember that we are on a time limit yeah so but I know this that whole this whole episode is is this yeah but i know so, that you can rabbit hole quite no no, no I, I can look i i battled ptsd for 21 years uh my father was an investigative journalist some of my earliest memories are being dropped off at school and then mum pulling us out of school and driving us cross country into a safe house mm because people were photographing us going into school to deliver a message to my father, you know, hey, we can get to your family anytime, anywhere, because he was investigating stuff they didn't want him to look at, Yeah, right? Um, you know, he was he was one of the most awarded investigative journalists in the Southern Hemisphere at one point. He won Dulux Awards, Qantas Awards, um, David Beatty Awards. You know, it, I still have a lot of his awards. He passed away uh, back in 2009, but I, I kept a lot of his awards to go up in the pool room one day. And... He was then the journalist who was brought in in Adelaide to investigate the collapse of the State Bank of South Australia. And what he found was there was $3.2 billion in missing funds in that collapse. And because the State Bank was underwritten, and keep in mind, when I say this, I'm explaining it as I understood it back then. And I was back then I was 11, 12 years old, mm. right? 
So I don't have all of the details. I just have what my understanding of the situation was. Uh, so if I do get that wrong, don't come and sue me and go, you got that wrong or whatever. Just, you know, this this was what my understanding of living and experiencing this was. But the because the state bank, or I believe the state bank was underwritten by the state government at the time, that $3.2 billion in missing funds was missing taxpayer money. The bank sued dad to try and get him to reveal his source and he flat out refused. Now, I can never point a finger and say these people did this or anything like that. But during that court case, there was a kidnap attempt made on me at school. There was attempts to break into my bedroom window. We lived with armed security guards like 24-7 around the clock you know, who would be on guard outside of our, our house. At one point, we got spirited out of Adelaide by a private security team in a military-style operation. And I'm talking, we got piled into a Tarago, a Toyota Tarago. We got driven to a shopping centre. We had, in the Tarago with us, we had two guards who were armed to the teeth. We had, uh, so we, we had a, a following car and a lead car. We got to the shopping centre we walked in one entrance and two the two guards who were with us melted away and two new ones just appeared, took us out the other side of a shopping centre into a different car and we then had another lead car, another trail car. Everyone in the cars, all these guys, they were, they were armed to the teeth. And this is Adelaide, by the way, mm. right? This is Adelaide. We came to an intersection where there was a car broken down in the intersection and they immediately went into ambush protocol. So they're yelling at us, get on the floor, get on the floor, get on the floor. So we're on the floor with our hands over our heads. This is in Adelaide. And they are now driving up Brighton Road in between two lanes of traffic. So over the white dotted line, mm. right? Lead car, trail car. We get to Adelaide Airport. We go in the celebrity secret entrance and are spirited out of Adelaide. In the lead up to this, I'm being fingerprinted and photographed on the bonnet of a car at the, the Marna Cliffs or Moana Cliffs, um, down near Seaford in Adelaide. And I'm 11, 12 years old, and I know the reason that they are doing that is so that they have a method of identifying my body if it turns up in a ditch somewhere, and they've got a recent photograph to release to the press if I get disappeared. If you get disappeared. If I get disappeared, if I get kidnapped, <laughs> whatever. Like, if I disappear. If you disappear. <laughs> right? It's, yeah. So, and this is like, there's there's not a lot of record of this. The only record you can find about this is if you were to do a Google search for my father's obituary, David Hellaby obituary. Uh, and there's a there's a single paragraph reference to it because it, they never put it in the press because they didn't want copycats, mm. right? They were terrified that copycats were going to happen. So that for me, like the first 15 years of my life or first 13 years of my life was... That was the most major incident, but there were others, yeah. right? Dad uncovered Croatian crime gangs in New Zealand. Like you go back to Underbelly and the the Mr. Asia, Kiwi Terry season of Underbelly. Dad was investigating Kiwi Terry in New Zealand before anyone in Australia even knew the guy existed, mm. right? Mr. Asia, all that sort of stuff. So I then battled PTSD. I say for 21 years, I probably had it before that, but I can simply say after Adelaide, there was PTSD. And I yeah. didn't actually get treatment for it until I was about 35 years old, 34, yeah. 35 years old. Um, and I would go through this period and I, I, 
I was constantly on edge. Like my when I finally got diagnosed and got diagnosed accurately, because I had doctors, and I had psychiatrists. Oh, it's just hereditary. Your whole family's got it. Well, my whole family had this shared traumatic experience, right? Mm. But nobody seemed to clue on. And I was like, oh, it's just genetic. You're just going to have to learn to manage it. Here, take these drugs. Mm. And I'd refuse the drugs. And I'd try the different strategies and things like that. And so I went through this period and, and it got to a point where I was kind of blasé about it, right? This is a story I'd tell at parties and I'd be like, you know what? And they'd be like, wow, you, we think you're depressed. I'd be like, everyone's depressed, but nobody needs a paid friend because that's how I saw psychs because I went through so many psychs and they'd try and textbook me, right? And how do you textbook a kid who was informed by a security team that they believe rogue elements of a state government were trying to kidnap Well, you do understand that them textbooking you is so that they can actually understand what path that they need to take in order to help you. Yeah, but there was no path in a textbook for this. No, but it, <laughs> like, it actually gives them the ability of identifying that. And that's, that, that was the point. Like, I didn't I'd, let them. No, I did. I, I tried. Yeah. I tried. And what eventually ended up happening in almost every single case... Um, was they would then see me as benefiting their career. They stopped being there to help me and they started being there to write a thesis or to, you know, whatever it was. Because here's this kid who has had this this insane thing happen that literally comes out of a Hollywood movie script. Mm. Um, and so they'd, they'd do that. And I'd pick up on that. And the minute I pick up on that, they lost me. And so then I would just screw with them. Mm. And I'd say whatever, like, because I'd been through so many of them that I kind of knew the routine. Mm. And so I could mess with them. And I would, because it was, well, if you're not going to be there for me, why the hell should I respect your time? Mm. Um, and that, that made me my own worst enemy in a lot of regards. Um, but you have this kid who is high-functioning Aspie, Asperger's, so we don't know that until 1995. No, well, 1995 is when they first went, hey, we've got this thing called Asperger's. I was already 14 years old. This kid who's battling PTSD, so is already a little bit socially awkward, has PTSD markers and, and behaviors like that, hyper threat awareness, hyper social anxiety, you know, all of these things playing out. And so it just painted a target on me for absolute bullying through school. Mm. Like just horrific. And I'm not even going to go into the details, but I will say that for the longest time, I had a list of people that if the opportunity ever came out, I was going to beat to death. Mm. you know the the anger that i had it now i don't have and, and just for i don't have that listening i don't give a shit anymore mm. but you know my depression manifests in a lot of ways as anger and so i really held that um and i i went through my teenage years and my my early 20s and i'd sabotage relationships and things like that and i had this line it was you know everybody needs help but nobody needs a paid friend because that's how i saw sykes and it was only, I was about 34 years old and I reached the point where I was done. And still affects me actually telling it, but I made the decision that day to end my life. Some stuff had happened with my ex, with the kids and with other bits and pieces. And I made the decision to end my life that day. And I was really fortunate because on a subconscious level, my parents had always ingrained in me that we were a family who never quit. No matter how hard things got, we never quit. And I made the decision to quit and my body wouldn't let me do it. So I've got up off my bed. I had a plan. In fact, I had three plans. And as soon as I took a step to go and execute a plan, I just collapsed. I was paralyzed from the neck down, lay on the floor for nearly an hour. And 
I had a, a text came through from my ex and it was quite rude and bullshit and that sort of thing. And when I could finally move again, I read that text and it made me angry. And the thing was, is when I could move again, I sat on the end of my bed because I was all, all my limbs were jelly. Like everything felt really cool. Like it was like I had a huge surge of adrenaline too much and the body just went, we're out, mm. right? Reset. So, reset. So I sat on the end of the bed waiting for feeling to come back into my arms and legs because my biggest fear at that point, like while I was lying there, I justified this decision. I, this was the and, best and thing that, for everybody around me. And that's the thing with depression right? too, is the fact that you can rationalize you can a, absolutely a rationalize very everything. irrational thought. 100%. I genuinely believe my kids and everybody else would be better off mm. without me. Well, that's right? how I was thinking when I had post-natal exactly. depression. And, thought, and, and I can tell you now, within two weeks of that day, some stuff went down where I had to advocate for my youngest son. And there, if I hadn't have been there, God knows what would have happened to him. Mm. There was no one who else who would have advocated for him in that situation, mm. right? And, and I would have missed everything, right? We're, we're nearly 10 years post this day. Mm. And everything that's happened in that time, I would have missed. And I wouldn't trade any of that for the world. But in that moment, I could completely rationalize it and yeah, justify it. it makes it, sense. Right? So my biggest fear, the reason I sat on Even the end of the bed. it doesn't. <laughs> in the moment, it makes sense. But I sat on the end of my bed because of the jelly feeling in my arms and legs, because at that point I was waiting for feeling and strength to come back into my arms and legs because my biggest fear, and this is how messed up it is, my biggest fear in that moment was being a screw-up at suicide. Mm. The thought that was going through my head is imagine being a screw-up at suicide. Mm. Like that's how broken I was. Mm. That was my biggest... Not death. Mm. Not any of it. Mm. My biggest fear was screwing it up, mm. right? And so I got the text from my ex and inadvertently I got angry about it and it was, you know, Oliver's like left his hat at your place, go and find it and deliver it to school or something and deliver it in, you know, uh, quite an aggressive manner. And I got angry at that. I got angry at the tone of it. And I marched through the house. I tore the house apart looking for this this hat, right? And it wasn't there. I fired a text back, you know, Kid would lose his head if it wasn't screwed on. Go check school, lost and found. And then I sat back down on the bed to wait for the feeling to come back into my arms and legs so I could go and carry out this plan. And I had this thought and it was, hang on, if I can get so angry about something so pointless and so small, maybe I'm not done here yet. And I took the rest of the day off and I, I literally lay in bed and just watched cartoons all day. And the next day I went to my GP and I sat down with my GP and I said, you have to fix me or I'm dead. Yesterday I made the decision to end my life and I had three separate plans and this is what they were. Mm. This is not attention. This is not a drill. Mm. Understand. Fix me or I'm dead. Mm. And he said to me, he goes, well, there's this experimental treatment that seems to be having good work. And I, I interrupted him. I, was, I, was, I look back now, it was quite rude. But I interrupted and I said, even if 50% of the people who do it die, it's a better chance than what I've got by myself, I'll do it. Mm. Didn't even know what I... Don't care. Coin flip, whether I live or die, better chance than what I've got by myself, mm. I'll do it. Uh, it turns out it was hypnotherapy. And it was amazing because I went through the diagnosis process, got properly diagnosed with PTSD and all of that sort of stuff, and went through hypnotherapy. And it allowed me to reset and to deal with the the issues that haunted me for so long. Mm. And the explanation that, that I got given is, if you look at an antelope on a nature documentary, mm. right, 
Lion jumps out of the bushes, the antelope. The antelope gets a surge of nervous energy in the form of adrenaline. Mm. And it bolts. Now, if that antelope successfully survives and gets away, you will often then see it standing in a field and just shaking, right? And and it's just shaking out all of the excess adrenaline that it didn't need Mm. because its fight or flight mechanism kicked in and gave it the adrenaline that it needs, Mm. right? But it gave it too much. Mm. Because our brain is kind of like, you need to live, so I'm going to give you so much that we're almost guaranteeing you're going to live. And the amygdala does that, but it doesn't take into account quality of life. Its job is to protect us and to keep us alive. It doesn't take into account quality of life. So for me, I'd been triggered into this fight or flight response and never come back down. Mm. I'd never shaken off the extra adrenaline, which meant the next time I got triggered, I went again and then again and then again. And I finally got to a point. And adrenaline is actually an addictive substance as well. Yeah, that's a whole other discussion. I've got theories on that too, but... I had got triggered to this point. Which is naturally created by the body. (laughs) And that's it. And I got to this point that I couldn't come back down. Mm. And I'd never actually, like, even when we were a nomadic society of tribal society, we'd go and we'd fight uh, or another tribe or we'd go hunting a big mammoth or whatever. And when the hunters came back, often they would have to go to a special village to dance out the bad juju, Mm. right? Because they couldn't come back into the village because they would be a destructive force. They were still heightened, right? And so this is how it was explained to me. And it made perfect sense. I'd never come down. I'd just constantly been triggered to a new level, new level, until it got to the point that my own brain was like, you can't go out the front door because someone's going to try and kill you. Mm. Right? And, like, I didn't want to die. Understand, I, I didn't want to die that day. I just couldn't live like this anymore. Mm. And that was that was the huge point. So from there, I spent half an hour talking about, you know, these, these challenges. Um, but from there... We learned a hell of a lot of strategies that, that really helped. And I think, like, I survived 21 years battling PTSD. Mm. The psych who diagnosed me turned around and went, how the hell are you still alive? Mm. And I think, you know, my answer to him at the time was flippant. I just turned around and said, I'm a stubborn bastard. But I think one of the things that allowed me to do that is very early on I recognized that this wasn't me. One of the challenges in the battles with depression is that it makes you feel like it's you. You are your depression, and you are absolutely not. When you have an, an, a battling depression, you are afflicted by an illness. You are afflicted by something. And that was something that I always, or from an early age, understood. This, I wasn't my depression. I was fighting against something external of me. So I was afflicted by something else. And that allowed me to fight. Mm. That allowed me to battle against something and to struggle against something. And that day that I finally hit that breaking point was I couldn't keep I couldn't keep fighting anymore. Mm. It wasn't I hate myself and you know I I'm this horrible creature. It was I can't. It's beaten me. I can't keep fighting anymore. Mm. And I think that that's a really really important thing to understand. Is that you are not your mental health battle. You are not your depression. You are not your anxiety. You are not any of it. Yeah. It is you afflicted by something and you're fighting against, not yourself, but you're fighting to free yourself from it. Mm. And that was a huge thing for me, I think, in, in that battle and being able to last as long as I did. Mm. Well, see, for for me, with the um, with the... 
for me personally, because everyone's depression um, story is unique, is their own. And I think that's probably one thing that really annoys me when I hear people that are just like, oh, they're just depressed. And it's <laughs> like, you are, do you understand what that is? Look, and, and when I say that, I mean as though in sitting there and saying, oh, you, you're just depressed, you need to go and get help, and um, th- those two things seem to be the biggest one. And saying you're just depressed, the person is already minimalizing themselves as it is. Like their internal dialogue is that they there is a worthiness. Oh, absolutely. That they, they tell themselves, you aren't worth this. You aren't this. You aren't that. Which yeah. is talking about someone's worthiness. And by saying just, instead of going, you are depressed, let's get you help. Or would you like to talk about this? This is a- another thing that frustrates me. Is when people who are depressed come to you and say, I am feeling this. Or I am feeling that turning around straight off the bat and going you need to go and talk to someone is is a way that they see it and this is from my own personal experience again it's like my issue is someone else's problem and and when i mean problem i well, mean you don't, you don't hold on burden. i i it's like they're literally just going um I, I don't want to deal with you. Yeah. Right? So it's it's just – and I know, I know when someone – because I have done it as well, right? I know that it's not that you're not caring. It's – the and not that you don't want to be there to help that person. It's just the automatic response of that person needs to go and get professional help. And I'm not saying that you should sit there with them every single time that they're wanting to just unload on you. What I'm saying here is listen to them, help them. It may be that you can actually turn around and go, would you like to take me or take you to the doctor? I'll do that for you. Because that means that that person knows that they can go, I can go to that person and, oh, I'm getting, (laughs) I can go to that person and they are going to help me. Yeah. Not just, you know, off you go. To become someone else's, I'm coming to you and I'm telling you how I feel. I've chosen you to share my feelings with you and you're supposed to be there. I thought you were a person that I could come to, but that person just automatically going, go to go and talk to someone else, right? And that is where it comes into, are you okay? Because if someone comes to you, do not respond straight off the bat as you need to go and talk to someone. Listen to them. Understand why they are feeling like that. 
offer like sure say that they need to go and seek help but don't just say go and seek help go actually say to them would you like me to go with you because sometimes they do just need to have that extra person there as a comfort to go okay let's do this together do you know what I mean I I get I get what you mean and I want to ask you I want to go back to because Obviously, not everyone on the planet is going to listen to this podcast. And even some of those that do are going to hear you saying that going, I can't be that person, right? And people going, you need to see someone or buck up or any of these things that we've copped. And and anyone who has battled mental health has had that response of, you'll be right, mate. You know, stiff up a lip. Go talk to someone professionally. And, and they're kind of, they are dismissive responses, but those responses come from a place of not understanding. Yes. Right. And so when you think about your battles, you think about how you felt, you think about the way that depression and anxiety and all that tore you apart from inside your own skull. My question to you is, do you really want that person to be able to understand? Well, it's not even so much understanding. So the person well, those that responses, actually helps... Those responses are from... Because they don't actually understand so, what it is you're saying and what you're going through. So So what, do you really want them so, to be able to understand? Because for them, for them to give a different response and to be able to empathise, and, and it's empathy and understanding where these responses change. So, right? okay. Do you really want them to be able to understand... That, that pain and that suffering. Because to understand it, they have to go through it no, themselves. hold on, hold on. So what I mean by this, because there is a lot of people out there that have had training. I've had training in yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So what I'm saying is... They're, I'm, they're in the I'm minority. Not, I'm not wanting them to... I don't want them to feel my pain. That's sympathising. No, no. I'm talking about empathy and actually having... If, if you see a child that's fallen over and they go oh, you know, like I've really hurt myself. What's the first thing that you do? Now, I'm not saying that everyone's a child when it no, comes to I, mental I health. I get what you're saying. What I mean is that that child comes to you and says, I'm feeling this, this hurts. Your first response is going, okay, well, I can, I'm not feeling your pain, but how about we go and get a Band-Aid to help you stop from bleeding everywhere? Or, you know, do you want not a cuddle a, not or something like that? Like that. And the, so, how, many, how many times do we growing up get, you'll be right, mate, walk it off? Yes, but there's education around this there, and that's what is. Are You Okay Day is all about because this type of thing was not around when we were younger. Look, I get it. But the point that I, I'm making by asking that question is for those people that do that, that give that dismissive response, for them to actually be able to empathise with you, they have to understand because that's, that's who they are that's, and that's how they are. And for them to be able to understand they have to have experienced their own pain, their own depression. And me personally, and this was a moment of realization that I had along my journey. Me personally, when I realized the reason they were being dismissive was because they didn't understand. And I went, and I got frustrated, I got angry. And I was like, well, they should understand. They should no, understand. No, that's not where I'm and coming then, from at and all. And then I suddenly realized what it would take for them to understand. That they would have to go through the pain of depression and anxiety and tearing themselves apart internally from inside their own skull. And when I realized that, that in order for them to understand that, they'd have to experience what I was experiencing, I, I, didn't, 
I didn't want to wish that on anybody. No, I'm not and saying that for me. That for me alleviated the frustration that I would feel at getting a dismissive response, and it allowed me to go. You know what? That's not the person who I need to talk to who can help me, and I'd try and find somebody else. That's not what I'm saying, right? Are you okay, day? Right? Is literally you you checking in on people, whether you understand how they are feeling, because you're never going to understand how someone else is feeling. You can only ever empathise with them unless you were there and you had that same um, that same experience. But even yeah, still, having that same experience, you can only ever empathise. You can you can still have pain. You can still, but the way that you deal with it is different. Hold on, before you go any further. What I am saying is this is about educating. That's what this this whole episode is about, educating. And I am saying here, I'm not saying that you sit there and you feel everything. That's not what I'm saying here. And that's not what I'm, I'm saying you're saying. I'm saying here that when it comes to people, those people who don't understand, this is what this podcast is for. Even for people who do understand, actually, this, being I'll be, there the, for someone, this, this podcast is for those who are battling to know they're not alone and to know strategies yeah, to how to deal with it. But it's also, yeah, but it's also, for, and it should also be for those people who say, "Oh, you need to seek an, a professional," because when you have a person who does have mental health issues, right, going to someone that they trust, that person, sure doesn't know but that's what are you okay day is about is actually not just about those people who have mental there's, health it's also about education there's, there's a as monumental... well to go hold on don't don't just say they need if someone the first step of mental health is actually acknowledging that you have a problem next step is going to someone and going hey are you uh, like, this is how I'm feeling. Even, you know, someone coming up to you and going, hey, I've, I've just noticed this. Are you okay? What can I do to help you? And if that means that that person is then acknowledging and going, okay, so this isn't just an internal thing. Someone else has actually noticed it as well. That person turning around and going, I don't know what I can do. That in itself is where you can turn around and go, okay, hey, do, do you want me to help you find a counsellor? Do you need a counsellor? Do you, like, what can I do to help you so that they know that they are not alone? Yep. It's not, the are you okay day is not just about acknowledging self, uh, that you mm. have a mental health issue and depression no, and I, all I of that. It. It's actually other people recognising, are you okay? Okay, let's help. Like, I don't know what your pain is. If you want to share that with me, that's fine. I'm here, but also let, like, I, I can be a, a, like, I can be a helping hand. Use me as a helping hand. Whether that means that I listen to your story and understand or try to comprehend as to why you're feeling like that, but also going, okay, whether you've been through that similar experience or you've never experienced it before, but you can identify that they're needing help. And so that you can go, all right, let me help you seek what you are needing. And all of that's great, but that 
does not help anybody who goes to someone and gets the response of go see a professional and, or you'll and be right. That's mate. What, that's and that's what it comes back and, to. But that's, that's what my point is. That's why I asked that question. Because if you are battling you, and you go to someone, there is a high chance that you are going to get a go talk to a professional or you'll be right, mate, everybody suffers, stiff upper lip and all that, and that you're going to get that. And my approach and something that I firmly believe in is we have to lead the fight internally. We have to arm ourselves to be able to deal with that. Yes, but you can't get there in that particular point in time you can't get there and there's some people who can't get there completely by themselves. I get and that. And that's the but reason why but going if they to go, someone else. If they else, go to someone else and that person does give them a dismissive response, right, everything you said, have said is great, but there's only a certain number of people, a certain type of person who's going to give that response and go, hey, let me help. How can I help? All of the things that you said, everything you said is great. But the question that I've asked and the point that I'm trying to make and the strategy that I'm, I'm highlighting here is for the people who go to someone and get the dismissive response. Because if you go to someone and you don't get the dismissive response, they follow what you've said in that, that's great. That's a step along the road. You're on the path to a positive outcome. And it might be a really long, windy road, but it's a good step in the right direction. If you go to a person who dismisses you, you're just as screwed as what you were, probably more so because you of the way you feel and that you feel diminished and minimalized. So you probably feel worse and more alone than what you did before you opened your mouth. Yes. And that is the point that I'm trying to make and the strategy that I'm trying to, to introduce here is that in we need, when, when you're battling mental health, keep asking for help because yes, you will come across people who will be dismissive, who don't understand because and and that's okay that they don't understand because when you really break it down, in order for them to understand, they have to go through their own version of the hell you're going through. Would you wish that on them? No, of course not. None of us would. So we have to forgive them for not understanding, and we need to find someone who can empathize and understand. And we have to understand for our own sake. For our own sake, that them not understanding and being dismissive is not actually about us and it's not that they don't want to help us. They just don't get it and we need to find someone who does. Yeah, but what I'm saying is are you okay day is to help help those people who don't understand to actually go, hold on, if someone comes to you and they say, I'm feeling like ending my life. I'm feeling like I am drowning. I feel like just disappearing because I don't feel worthy of my existence, right? If you have people who say those types of things, not in those words, but where you can go, okay, that is a gist that is, you know, they're – they are not aware that they are worth more to turn around and go, 
you need to go and seek professional. They know that. A lot of people already know. It's, it's validating what they are feeling, right? That I, I didn't know that. I was absolutely adamantly against it. Yeah, but when you when you sit there and someone listens to your story and how you are feeling and they say, have you got any help for this? Have you gone and spoken to a doctor? Have you gone and spoken to a counsellor? Because there is a difference between counsellors, psychologists and psychiatric help. There, there's different oh, helps there's, there's there. huge differences. There, there is help and there is a big difference. And I think, I think one of the, the key things that you just said there is they listen to your story because – one of the strongest and the best things we can do in those scenarios, like, and, and I say this to the kids all the time, right? And and their friends are dealing with stuff and, and, you know, I'll say to them, be willing to listen to the story because it's amazing. We build stuff up in our heads and it gets on a hamster wheel and becomes bigger than what it actually is. It seems like this massive mountain mm. of doom in our heads. And the minute we say it out loud, it brings perspective. Mm. And we realize that it's not actually as big as what we thought it was. Mm. And that helps. Like just saying, it's one of the reasons like, you know, you see me in live in gear regularly, uh, mm. LiveIn.org is, is, you know, raising awareness around this and, and mental health and helping in it. And I support it. Like I, I compete in live in t-shirts whenever I, I get the opportunity to, if I'm, if I'm in strongman and things, because and my living's all over my Instagram in, in terms of the shirts when I'm lifting and recording stuff in the gym. And, the reason for it is their motto was it ain't weak to speak. And speaking about the issues is one of the strongest things you can do, mm. right? And one of the reasons for that is the minute you say it out loud, it brings perspective. And then, don't get me wrong, you might say it out loud and you realize that, yeah, it really is a big deal. You might say it out loud and go, you know what, that's a manifestation of another issue and I've focused on that and made that bigger than what it needed to be mm. because I haven't dealt with this other issue. Mm. There's, there's all sorts of things that come into play. But... And and by the way, support living living.org, get on it. Like every hoodie, I think there's a there's a stack going around and every hoodie pays for like twenty-five or thirty conversations around mental health. So mm. and, and raising that awareness. So it's awesome. Um but I think that you know you're dealing with one part in, in this, you're talking about one part of the response from a type of person, someone who listens into this and goes, hey, that's a great response. And I agree with you. I agree with the points that you've made that this is how you should respond, mm. right? My experience was I never had someone turn around and I, I never follow, had the, right? the only... I got I got the dismissive responses. And so what my point is, what I'm trying to say is when you get the dismissive responses, look at it this way. Because looking at it this way, for me at least... It allowed me to shoulder the burden of being dismissed. Mm. It allowed me to look at it and go, it's okay that they don't understand. I need to find someone who does, but it's okay that they don't understand. Well, when I was going Because through, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. When I had my eating disorder, it wasn't until I actually had uh, a, a friend who um, was also a health professional not a, a, he, technically speaking, he was a doctor, yeah. but that wasn't it. Wasn't a GP kind of deal. Um, he was a, a, a different, <laughs> a different doctor, um, and he actually said to me, "I was walking out of the clinic, and he said to me, you 'You're looking a bit thin there.'" Yeah. 
And he he has even said to me even now, right, where he's just like, I remember you were coming in and he was like, I was actually starting to get concerned about doing, because uh, he was a chiropractor, doing the manipulation because I was concerned that I was going to break a bone yeah. because of how skinny I was. And so that you guys have an idea, I'm 5'11". And at that stage, I was um, 65 kilos. Uh, I was literally skin and bone. And and in my head, I was still going, I'm not skinny enough. I am not this. I am not that. I should be working hard. I should be, you know, and um, that, that was my whole focus was mm. I was wanting to uh, be a, like for whatever reason, I still don't understand even now why I even think down that path or I should be fitting this mould where I can see people like, you know, like Lizzo and, you know, women of larger sizes where they're like, this is me. And I look at them, I'm just like, Oh my god! Like yeah. that is so awesome that you, and then, but for my own internal dialogue, it's like, yeah, you should be, you shouldn't be that. No, and and, it, and, and uh, trust me, like I am not saying that people who have that that identity where they they can go, this is me, and this is who and I am, and I love me. That's probably the biggest thing. I love me. Yeah. As soon as you yeah. can actually stand in a mirror, look yourself in the eyes, and go, I love me, and actually feel it in your heart, and genuinely feel it in your heart, consistently, because we are our own worst critic, Yeah. that being able to stand there and feel it, that's when you can go, okay, I'm ready to, I, I am where I need to be in my yeah. life. And I think, like, it's interesting you touch on that because you went one way in your battle with that where you wouldn't eat. And I went the opposite way. Uh, I, I was eating, but... You would do things to ensure the nutrients didn't. No. No. I I was eating around because I was still living at home for majority of it. Um, I was ensuring that I was eating when my parents were home. Yeah. Um, and then, like through the day, they they were at work. I was studying. Yeah. Um, and also looking for a job, and you know, starting to go out more and everything like that. Um, so through the day, I would not eat a lot. Yeah. So you, I, you were absolutely controlling calories. I was eating, a, I'm not going to go, because I don't want no, anyone. Don't, don't give numbers, don't, yeah. I, I wasn't calorie counting. Yeah. Right? I was eating a certain amount of biscuits. I was eating a certain type of yeah. biscuit. I was drinking liquids, but I was only drinking certain types yeah. of liquids. And then when my parents, when my mum would come home and, you know, she would make her food, um, I would eat half or a quarter of it and go, oh, I, I had a late lunch. Yeah, yeah. 
So it's, it's interesting you went that way because for me, it went the other way. That was after and it going the other way. You see, I, for me, the feeling of depression and anxiety manifests in my, in my stomach. It's a physical feeling I have in my stomach. Mm. And it's almost identical to the feeling of hunger to the point that I couldn't differentiate between them. Mm. So when I would really struggle, I'd, I'd feed my face. Mm. And so I'd, I'd obviously gain a lot of weight and things like that. And the only, the only time, and then this gets into one of the strategies I, I think is, is super important. Um, you know, the only time that I actually began to like my reflection in the mirror was when I took up Strongman. Mm. And, and suddenly this size that was on me was worthy of something because it was strength. Mm. I was strong, mm. right? Like I, I could deadlift cars, I could pull ambulances and, and I did these things. And so suddenly, you know, it became, oh, you know what? Yeah, like I, even now I tip the scale at about 151 kilos, but about 88 kilos of that is solid fat-free muscle. Mm. That means there's still 40 kilos of fat on my frame that I need to, to do something mm. about. But it meant that there was something that I could be proud of in my body and, and that definitely helped. Um, but exercise, exercise is such, one of the things I think everybody talks about exercise, but nobody talks about why exercise is so effective in managing mental health. And yes, exercise is. Exercise is effective in managing mental health. And the reason for that is if you do 30 minutes of, of like go for a brisk walk for 30 minutes, but 30 minutes of exercise where you get your heart rate up and things like that, it releases endorphins into your bloodstream. Those endorphins are the exact counter to the chemicals in your body that make you feel depressed and anxious. This is where I say to you, that's all well and good. But the one thing when it comes to eating disorders right doesn't matter the type of eating disorder yeah no and and look i i was kind of segueing us so, out of the eating disorder no, no, part no. Into the reason why i say for, uh, the reason why help. i say this is because you can have someone who has an eating disorder and you wouldn't even know about it you would just think that they're going to to the gym mm. and some of them actually a, a lot of it is doing workouts because that's a way of actually burning. So that's the reason why I'm saying, hold on, it, it can be a strategy depending. Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't pair I wouldn't pair exercise with an eating disorder where you're not eating enough. Um, it's not about eating enough. Well it's about burning where, and where making, you're burning too much. Yeah. 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 Where, where you're burning too much or you're not giving But then your you body can actually fuel. have someone who is like, you know what, I enjoy wa- walking. Yeah. And I know that for me, I can get into that meditative state. Because let's face it, you do. When you exercise, you do have <laughs> a meditative state because you focus on your breathing in order to make sure that your yeah. body is getting the oxygen that it needs in order to do it. So if you have someone that's like, I enjoy walking and the reason why I'm saying walking is because of the Black Dog Institute has a month in October well, you, yeah, where you, it's... You raise funds, you hit You raise funds and you, you know what, even if you don't raise funds and I am still part of the group that I was a part of when I had done it a couple of years ago, even it's not about raising the funds. It is also about understanding yourself. It is also about being able to help yourself, but also one thing that is huge when it comes to mental health is actually having a community. Yeah, 
and and, and, and having it. having and, and a community that of those people who aren't going to go or aren't going to be dismissive because they get it they understand yeah, exactly yeah. and that community that you know every so often I'll jump in so shout out to Paul Rudd and, and that is literally his name it's not not the not the celebrity it's Paul not Rudd. the celebrity his name is legitimately Paul Rudd <laughs> um. And he, um, had, like, when um, I had started, I don't know if he had done it previously, but he was also there. And I had, um, you know, put up just funny little things where it was like, you know, how about you have different activities where it's like um, when you go for your walk, get a picture of something where it makes you stop and actually be in that moment where you forget about everything else, where it is literally like there is a really pretty flower and I have to and share it so that you're actually creating that community. And do you know what? There had been a lot of people within that group that had actually said, do you know how many times I have had thoughts previously to doing this and having this group here has actually helped me that I can come on because I don't feel that I have anyone else within my network that I can actually come to and say hey this is how I'm feeling and actually be heard and and that's that's massively important and Look, you touched on something there that I want to get into as one of the key strategies, and and I'm kind of annoyed we haven't brought it up. Like we're an hour in, and we need to to kind of wrap things up. But this is such a powerful strategy, and it's one of the tools that I use to buy me more time in my battle and to keep me going. And I would wake up, and I'd challenge myself to write down three things that I was grateful for that day. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the day, I had to write down those three things. And it had to be unique. I couldn't just go every day, I'm grateful for my kids, I'm grateful for food, I'm grateful for my car, whatever. It couldn't be the same thing every day. It had to be three new things, three unique mm-hmm. things every single day. And I did this for a year. And at the time that I did this, they hadn't done studies into it, right? And they've since done studies into it, and it's incredible. It is one of the most powerful things you can do because it's easy to do for the first two and a half, three weeks, mm. right? Because you go through your family, you go through your favorite things, your favorite video games, all that. That gets you about 21 days worth of stuff, mm. right? But then after that 21 days, it gets really, really hard. And you have to see, because you're now in the habit of doing it and you don't want to break the streak. So you have to start really looking for things to be grateful for. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day I was out letterbox dropping this back when I was a real estate agent. And I've put this, this flyer into the letterbox and I've looked up and just through the trees, there was a gap in the leaves, a perfect blue sky, sunshine shining through, and it lit up the back of this one particular leaf. And I could see all of these veins in the leaf and the detail was so crisp and incredible and the green was mm. beautiful. And I went, how lucky am I yeah. to be able to see this in such detail? And my brain immediately went, wait, save that. That's a, that's a gratitude for tomorrow. And so what the studies have shown since then, because this, this was 10 years ago for me, mm. right? And what the studies have shown since then is that when you do, like you wake up and you force yourself to find something to be grateful for, three things to be grateful for, and you do it for an extended period of time, it brute force rewires your brain to start looking for things to be grateful for Mm. and to be positive about, which has this overarching effect on your psyche that you suddenly start to develop more of a positive outlook. And that positive outlook then counters the perception that depression has tried to visit on you and modify your reality with. Mm. 
of, of that negative. And it also changes the chemistry within your brain and the it way does, that it, it's it wired. It actually changes the chemistry within the brain, which yeah. is incredible. Um, and so that's, it's, it's a super, super powerful tool. But there's a point, like you, you kind of hinted at a point before we, when we are talking about the eating disorders about, you know, when I said exercise, and I thought you were going in a different place. And I wanted to revisit because when you are in the pit, when you're struggling with depression, it's all well and good for people to come and say, hey, you should do exercise. It'll counter, you'll get the endorphins, make you feel good, woo yay. But there are days, and often many of them in a row, where someone could put a million dollars worth of gold at the end of your driveway and you couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. You couldn't get to it. And and it is fine and, and that's to okay. have those days. That's okay. Like it's totally fine. But one thing that helped me overcome that mm. was somewhere along the way, I read a study and it was a, a scientific study, like properly ratified, tested through scientific method, the whole works, on the journal called, I think it was PLOS One, P-L-O-S-O-N-E, mm. I think is the name of the journal. I might be wrong on that. But if you do a search for PLOS One um, and, and magnesium effects of, uh, with depression. Oh, yeah, right? magnesium's, magnesium's huge. Magnesium's huge. And so this study found... In these double-blind tests, so one of the things, at just real quick context, one of the things a doctor will do when you say, hey, I think I'm depressed, they'll go on a scale of 1 to 10, where do you feel you are today, mm. right? And in terms of your depression, and you'll rate it between 1 and 10, right? 1 is low, I'm, I'm pretty okay. 10 is, hey, I'm suicidal, mm. kind of stuff, right? And what they found is over an extended period of time, a certain level of magnesium dose, and I'm not going to give the number because it's always going to be different for everybody. Well, you should go and talk to your doctor yeah, about on, it. Yeah. But. Because they will if, give you t- and, a blood test and stuff to check. And it's a certain type of magnesium because some magnesium the body just discards completely and doesn't mm. use and can't metabolize. And there's a certain type. And so it's got to be the certain amount of the certain type. But if you take that daily, what they found in this study was that the self-reporting of where they were at and how depressed they were improved from an average of six out of 10 as in, I'm well below par, I am, I am. it's a bit of a, I can get through the day, but it's a struggle mm. and I'm not going to get everything done, I'm going to beat myself up and all that sort of stuff, to a three, mm. which was, you know what, I kind of feel off today, I feel a little left to center, but I can get through shit, Yeah, right? And so what I found... When I read that study, I immediately started taking magnesium. It was smart for me to do anyway because muscle recovery and things like that. And I found that I had less days where I woke up where I couldn't get out of bed. Mm. And it was easier for me to go, come on, let's get up and go for a walk for 30 minutes or an hour or whatever. Mm. It was easier for me to break through that wall that the depression was putting there to try and stop you from doing the things that would help you. Because that's that's one thing that I always found so insidious about depression, right? It's not just an illness where you feel blah and you feel down and you feel low and you feel sad and anxious and all that sort of stuff. It's also an illness that actively works through the brain chemistry to prevent you from doing the things that would help you counter it mm. and, and break away. Like mm. it it actively works to make you to try and stop you from exercising through manipulation of, of your mental status quo. Mm. So even though you know as an intelligent human being that if you go and do 30 minutes of, of brisk walking, the endorphins are going to counter the depression. Mm. 
but it actively works to prevent, like it's so insidious. And so by taking that magnesium, I found within a few weeks, the hold the depression had on me mm. and, and its ability to prevent me from doing the things that I knew were good for me mm. was weakened. And I could more often than not break through. Now, this wasn't a cure. Please understand, it wasn't a cure. It didn't magically go away. I had to deal with the underlying issues that were really the root cause of my PTSD and depression and everything mm. like that. I went through a lot of psych to do that, went through hypnotherapy to do that. But what it allowed me to do was to survive another day and be productive in another day and get through another day in a significantly more positive fashion than if I'd just white-knuckled it. Well, also being able to go, you know what, tomorrow is when I'm going to go and seek help. Yeah. I, I, ha- I had a greater I, chance of following through on those plans. Yeah, having yeah. that and having goals for yourself as well. So even if it, even if it is walking down the end of your, your yeah. driveway, and even if it, and then you go, okay, that's going to be, that's going to be my goal this yeah. week. Yeah, I, I can do it three days in a row, I and still, I know that I to this day I still take magnesium, even yeah. though I don't, because it has had that, like they've been able to prove the effect it has on your baseline mood, and also creating a new habit. Believe it or not, that creating yeah. a new habit can be enough where it, it can actually start to trigger yep. the okay. So this is my new normal. I'm yep. changing my normal, and this is and, my new and normal. That, that can help you gain some momentum, but. I, I'm I'm a huge advocate and, and fan of magnesium. Mm. Um, do your own study into it. Talk to your GP. I, yeah. This is something that worked for me. Or I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a dietitian. I'm not someone who understands anything more than what my personal experience has been. And I think that's it. That's where we're going to finish up today. Okay. <laughs>